You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal, nuclear energy, natural gas, hydro, solar power, wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For December 9th, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. As the energy transition proceeds and the world takes more aggressive steps to curb global warming, analysts from many disciplines are questioning how economic growth can be maintained or if there are limits to growth, a concept first raised in the 1970s, that will also limit the progression of energy transition. Will we run into fundamental limits on resources and debt? Or can human ingenuity and technological innovation continue to overcome any limits we may encounter? These two narratives, techno-realism and techno-optimism, are no less in tension today than they were in the 1970s, and we've tried on this show to present both points of view. While most of our episodes are about the successful advance of renewables and other energy transition strategies, we have also heard from numerous proponents who worry about the limitations of energy transition, including Bill Reese in episode 54, Colin Campbell in episode 103, our conversation about degrowth in episode 125, and our conversation with Carrie King way back in episode 32. Today, we invite Kerry, a research scientist at the University of Texas at Austin, back on the show to talk about his new book titled The Economic Superorganism Beyond the Competing Narratives on Energy, Growth, and Policy. It's a large and thoroughly researched volume in which he explores these competing narratives and asks some fundamental questions about the possible trajectory of our economies. To quote a paragraph from the final chapter of the book, we are caught in a conundrum. On the one hand, the individualistic and profit-seeking structure of the economic superorganism is what drives innovation, creativity, and the ability to both create and solve energy and environmental problems. We seem to want this feature. On the other hand, the biophysical nature of the superorganism means that physical limits and natural laws constrain its space of solutions, such that we might not be able to solve all social and environmental problems simultaneously. We might not want these physical constraints, but we have to deal with them. Now, this is pretty heady and academic stuff, and as you'll hear in today's interview, even I struggle sometimes to relate it to more understandable things in the physical world. But I keep drawing attention to work like this for a few reasons. One, I want to check my own techno-optimism about the potential for energy transition and make sure that I remain rooted in the real world. Two, I want to make some room for the perspectives of those who worry about the economic implications of the transition and wonder if capitalism can really deliver the outcomes we seek, a topic that we discussed with Ed Crooks back in episode 22. Because there's a whole tribe of people out there who really doubt whether energy transition can succeed because of their reservations about the decoupling of the abstract world of debt and finance from the real world of resources on a finite planet. 
And three, I think it's an interesting lens on the tension between those who advocate for a continued reliance on the fossil fuels that have gotten us this far, and those who advocate for energy transition. As Kerry promises in his book, quote, you'll be able to distinguish the technically possible from the socially viable, and understand how our future depends on this distinction. So I hope you'll stick around for this excursion into biophysical economics with Kerry. Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll have a look at the latest moves to ban natural gas hookups and transition toward all-electric buildings. We'll note a new peak gas forecast. We'll consider the possibility of a second bankruptcy for the largest coal company in the U.S. And we'll hail the recent pledges of carbon neutrality in Japan and China. And now, our conversation with Kerry King, recorded November 9th, 2020. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome back, Kerry, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you very much, Chris. Today we're going to talk about your new book titled The Economic Superorganism Beyond the Competing Narratives on Energy, Growth, and Policy. And it draws upon the work that you've been doing for quite a few years now on the relationship between energy and the economy. In fact, you joined us way back in episode 32, four years ago. And in that episode, we focused on the question of whether economic growth could really be decoupled from energy consumption. And in particular, we asked whether energy transition could be done without pushing the economy into recession and debt. In your new book, you seem to be focusing in a bit more on the latter question and outlining five global economic points that you say we must understand if we're to design policy that will bring us a sustainable future. So why don't we start there? What are these five points? Right, thanks. The book touches on a bit of the two ideas that you already brought up, but the sort of five points that I introduce in chapter one is that first, physical laws and constraints describe how we can use and access energy, and we try to understand physical laws for this purpose to a large degree. Second, energy resources physically power the economy via use in machines and buildings and other physical capital. And third, our interpretations of the economy inform policy. Then we get fourth, policy affects social outcomes by designing markets, regulations, and taxes that affect the distribution of money. And then finally, fifth, the rules governing where, how, and when money is distributed, affect energy resources and extraction leading back to the beginning. So in a short sense, energy largely defines what the economy is or how it functions. Economy informs policy, policy affects society, and then society again can feed back and affect our choices of energy. So you're really highlighting, once again, sort of the intimate connection between the economy and energy consumption. Right. And so the idea of the book is to kind of set this up and say, this is what this book is going to be about, so we can understand things about how people talk about energy and the economy in papers and magazines and news articles. That's kind of one side of it. But then the more intellectual side of the book is, okay, how are economic models really thinking about the fundamental integration of energy in their models and in their assumptions? And are they capable of informing this question, such as the question of an energy transition? All right, well, let's dig into that a little bit then. So your argument uses a couple of dichotomies to talk about the narratives that people use when they talk about our energy future. The first, dealing with energy, is kind of obvious. There's fossil fuels versus renewables. The second, which deals with economics, is techno-optimism versus techno-realism. I'd imagine that no listeners to this show need the first one explained, but <laughs> why do you set out this opposition between techno-optimism and techno-realism? Like, how does that affect our drive to Towards sustainability. Right. So I set up the economic narratives because the more I thought about the distinguishing features between fossil and renewable energy, the more I realized that I and 
most everybody else kind of studying this, we're perhaps getting lost in the details without fully understanding the big picture and the true linkages between the energy system as a whole and the rest of the economy within society. So in some sense, if we keep discussing land and greenhouse gas emissions and water use of energy technologies, are we just kind of missing the forest by focusing too much on the trees? I think most people will recognize the critical role of energy in society, but very few are really seriously contemplating just how society and our economy might be inherently shaped by the overall cost of energy and the rate of consumption of energy. So that is to say, I'm not sure there's enough serious thought into how our current size and structure of our economies are being affected by long-term changes in energy trends. So I wanted to explicitly state that in order to understand why people say certain things about energy technologies and resources in terms of the fossil versus renewable energy narratives, that we actually really need to focus on and understand how, if at all, they are also simultaneously thinking about the purpose and operation of the economy. And if we can understand a person's economic worldview, whether it's techno-optimism or techno-realism and thinking about the fundamentals, constraints of a finite planet and the physical uses of energy, once we understand these economic worldviews, we can much better understand why a given person might advocate for one type of energy system versus another. So you're suggesting that the worldview of the observer here is really important. Right. I mean, at an extreme case, you could say someone has an economic model and they're modeling an energy transition. Is there anything in the model that says that the environment around them or the earth is finite or not? That's kind of a very large assumption. And one person's worldview might say, for this question, I don't need to assume the size of the earth. Another person may think, well, of course, I need some number that's not infinity that constrains what the options are within the model. But I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm just sort of devil's advocating you to death here, but why does it matter what the worldview of the analyst is? Like, isn't it really a fundamental question of how many kilowatt hours you need and where you can produce them and how they get used? Right. But go into the book, let's just say the economic growth models that are used behind most integrated assessment models inherently have no constraint. I mean, they have prices and resource sizes, but they sort of assume in many cases that GDP or technology is an exogenous assumption, you know, not part of the model itself in terms of how much the economy is going to grow. So if we want to understand if an energy transition affects the size and structure of the economy, they're making assumptions in their worldview, if you will, in the model that preclude that question from being answered. And I think many of these things are just driven by the size of the environment. I mean, people know from a back-of-the-envelope calculation, say that, okay, yeah, there's enough land and solar technology is good enough that you can install solar panels and provide as much energy as needed for current economies, but there's still constraints on exactly what pieces of land we're going to use. Okay, so it sounds like you're driving out a question about constraints here, resource constraints. Yeah, whether they're explicitly considered and whether the flow of energy going to different devices or different sectors in an economy is being explicitly considered outside of something like price, which is not necessarily a physical metric. Gotcha. All right. Well, you argue that mainstream macroeconomic growth models tend to ignore the relationship between energy, economic growth, and money, particularly debt. So I think we've just now sort of touched on that point between energy and economic growth, and that you're pointing out that there may be resource limits that come into play. But then we have money and debt. So what do you think is missing in the mainstream macroeconomic view? Right. So the mainstream economic view is pretty much still what we would call neoclassical economics. 
And it's been critiqued for decades, but it still dominates economic education and most models that are doing simulations of something like an energy transition. So the main things that are missing, you've kind of touched on it. One is time or realistic dynamics. If you don't have a realistic incorporation of time, then you're going to miss kind of short and long-term feedbacks. So this is to say they're equilibrium models. The supply and demand come into equilibrium at certain points, and that equilibrium, it's to some degree, ignores the concept of debt or private debt, or the idea that money is an endogenous creation of making loans to businesses to build things, perhaps wind and solar panels. The government can also issue money to pay for these things, but the idea of private debt, which means the idea of interest payments then, and their ability to affect the structure of society and the flows of money is neglected. And there's also usually not an explicit account for how physical capital requires energy input to operate, and that that has a linkage to the concept of capital in these economic models, which is usually a representation of money and not a representation of a, of a machine or a thing that's actually providing a physical output or purpose. So this lack of explicit physical capital and energy input and their efficiency, say that's like the conversion efficiency of fuel into useful work, what the researchers would call useful work, which is like mechanical drive and electricity and high temperature heat at a chemical facility or something like that. So that's kind of the practical concerns, and many of these are addressed in other kinds of economic approaches. And in the latter part of the book, I get a little bit more philosophical on these kind of notes, and the final chapter explains how Considering the concept of time and this concept of evolution and natural selection, you know, I, I hypothesis as to why many concepts within neoclassical theory, such as using marginal costs to set market prices, might be less accurate than frameworks I work on, which we might claim to be more physically accurate by taking into account some basic conservation principles and tracking physical resources as well as money. You might not necessarily have a model that society wants to use to govern itself, like to make markets, it might not have to actually be more accurate. It could just be more useful in an evolutionary sense by actually having a less accurate description of the physical world or the real economy. I kind of pose that as a hypothesis in the book that I don't know the answer to, but this gets a little bit into how people think about evolution and even how people make decisions. Do you actually want the most accurate representation of the world around you to make a decision, or do you just want a simple representation that can allow you to make a quick decision? I think I'm following what you're saying here, but it all feels a little abstract. Well, I wonder if we could use a more concrete example maybe to elucidate this point you're making about the relationship between energy growth and money and debt. So can we try that? Like, could you take, I don't know, when I think about debt in the energy context, I immediately think about fracking because it's totally debt-driven phenomenon. But choose your energy technology. And I wonder if you could just sort of explain these concepts in the context of something concrete. Well, I'll take, I guess, the concrete example of thinking about capitalist machines with an efficiency that produces useful work. The research has shown several papers, and a lot of this driven by work instigated by Robert Ayers, that he was estimating useful work in economies, say the United States or United Kingdom, and there's a few other countries that have been analyzed. You know, one more unit of useful work produced within an economy translates almost one-to-one to a unit of GDP. So there are all these kinds of theories, or let's just say neoclassical theory doesn't have this explicit relationship, but this seems to be a more accurate representation of GDP. So if you know the number of machines you have and the efficiency they convert 
fuel to useful work, assuming the energy is available, then you have an accurate representation of GDP as opposed to positing the value of capital and the hours worked per labor and these kinds of things. So that's one example. Debt probably is more overall important for thinking about economic modeling in general, maybe not so much specifically the energy system, at least this is something I'm still trying to think about. It's certainly not a feature that needs to only be describing the energy system. It's more of an overall economic approach, which is to say modern economies are based upon creating credit to lend companies money to build infrastructure. For example, it doesn't have to be the energy system. And ever since the end of the gold standard in the 1970s, the debt ratios of, let's just say, the United States and the world in general have gone up more rapidly, and this culminated in the financial crisis. So it's a little bit more of a statement on you can't understand what's going on in the real economy without understanding the role of debt and interest payments. So it's a little bit more of a generic statement than you can't understand the energy system without it. But could you put this in very concrete terms? Like, Can you explain what you're referring to here using the example of an energy technology? using the example of perhaps fracking to produce oil and gas or wind or solar or something that our listeners would be familiar with. So let's just say you invest in energy extraction machines and you're having trouble generating as much energy as you used to from any given technology, you might not produce the returns that you expected. And if you don't, then you won't be able to pay back your debt and you'll have higher interest payments. If you have higher interest payments, these may get passed on eventually to customers. They could be related to mortgages. That's what happened in the financial crisis. So that's why it's not necessarily about the energy system per se. All right. Well, I think it's fair to say that your work and your thesis here is a part of the field of study known variously as ecological economics and biophysical economics because it applies concepts taken from ecology and from the study of biophysical systems and applies them to the study of economics. So can you elaborate a bit on this for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with the field? Right. Sometimes our people use these terms. When I think about these terms, I, I think it was Milton Friedman who stated sometimes there's just economics. There's not this kind of economics and that. So at some level, it makes me not want to use specific terms, but we just want to do proper accounting of economics. But it does help explain what these mean. So to me, ecological economics and biophysical economics take to heart one basic principle that the economy resides within an environment, such as the earth for the most part. And the environment is not some external concept or an externality that only has a one-way influence, being influenced by the economy. So if you take that to heart, you have to make a decision on what your model's worldview assumes the environment is, and whether, again, as we've already stated, whether it's infinite or finite, and incorporate certain feedbacks and ideas like energy return on investment, like how much energy does it take to run the energy system. And if it takes too much energy to run the energy system, there's less energy left over to accumulate more capital or grow a population or these kinds of things. And we could say agrarian societies had lower energy return on investment than the industrial fossil-fueled society, and effectively that's why we're, we're larger and we've accumulated more things. So in addition to that, I think of biophysical economics is just explicitly tracking the flow of physical quantities like mass and energy through economic processes, because energy... If we got nerdy, we could say exergy, is consumed in order to have any economic activity, whether that's information processing, running computers, transporting things from one place to another, cooking or manufacturing. And when 
people are looking at biophysical economics or ecological ideas, then it's in some sense natural just from those words to think about analogs in ecosystems or analogs in biology and see if these provide insights into what's going on in the economy. And one thing that many people have looked at is what we would call scaling laws of relating metabolism and the size of animals. So Kleiber's rule is this approximation that the basal metabolism or energy consumption of an animal scales with its mass to the three-quarter power. This is to say if the mass is 10 times bigger, the energy consumption for that animal is not 10 times bigger. It's something smaller, something, say, five or six times bigger. It's this three-quarter power scaling law. So we call this a sublinear scaling law in the sense that energy consumption increases slower than the size of the organism. Kleiber's rule is perhaps most applicable for adult animals, mammals, things with a circulatory system, trees as well. But there are also insights from other types of organisms that aren't adults. So I think there's some papers that describe prokaryotes, which are essentially single-celled organisms with no nucleus, like bacteria, and these have superlinear scaling. So when their mass gets bigger, they consume energy consumption goes up faster than their mass grows, but they don't have internal structure. So there's no nucleus and other internal structures. Then you have protists, slightly more complicated cells, eukaryotic single cells like amoebas. And these have linear scaling, which is to say if their mass is 10 times bigger, their energy consumption is roughly 10 times bigger. And then there's metazoans, which are essentially organisms like ourselves that have different kinds of cells and organs in our bodies. So think like mammals. And these have the sublinear scaling when they're adults. So the insights here are that the structure of a living organism is in some sense directly tied to its use of energy. The scaling of how it grows and how much energy it needs is linked to what its internal structure is and how it distributes nutrients within itself. And so we can think, okay, can we imagine this kind of translation to the economy? And when you look at economic data, say for the global economy since 1900, it has a roughly linear, maybe super linear scaling between total primary energy consumption and GDP from 1900 to 1970. But then after 1970, it has this sublinear scaling law like an adult animal. So its GDP goes up by 10 times. Primary energy consumption went up two thirds of that quantity. So these are some insights that we can get from biology and other kinds of studies, other kinds of areas that are linking size and structure to energy consumption. And we can try to imagine, and the research isn't fully done here, how has the global economy changed its structure? And is this linked to the same kinds of reasons why we might describe energy consumption in animals? We observe in other animals when they grow, they go from superlinear scaling to sublinear when they grow to an adult. So a fish embryos, for example, I discuss in my book from one paper, fish embryos have super linear scaling when they're growing. But as you can imagine, an embryo doesn't have a lot of different features that an adult fish have. The cells haven't grown into those new types of specialized cells. And then when it grows into an adult, it has this sublinear scaling. So again, it's this size, how the size and structure change over time, and how this is linked to energy consumption. And we can think that every single cell in a body isn't trying to become more efficient. The body itself, our bodies, we're not consciously thinking about, well, I want to have a sublinear scaling law, which makes me look like I'm using energy more efficiently. There's no conscious thought of that. It just kind of happens. And the papers and the theories behind these are saying, yeah, it happens because when you understand the physical constraints of distributing things like blood through your circulatory system, 
subleader scaling law becomes, in some sense, a necessity. So would it be fair to say that you're looking at this dynamic or this relationship to the animal kingdom in order to understand the relationship between energy consumption and GDP, where the economy is effectively the organism that we're studying, and where we want to understand how much energy does that organism, does that economy need to consume in order to grow? Right. Yeah. So I'd say that. So effectively, if we observe the same types of patterns between energy consumption and size with the economy and organisms, so then it poses kind of the obvious question, is our economy just a big super organism? And should we understand how the economy grows and structures itself using similar ways that we try to study ecosystems and animals and, and their patterns of growth? And if we do that and we find parallels, then maybe we'll better understand if we need to and how we should make different rules and constrain how the economy works. If it seems to be growing in some way, we, we might not like. Again, when I wrote the book, I didn't anticipate kind of getting a little bit more philosophical on that question, but it really does get to this kind of question of, can we control how the economy operates? Or are we just kind of at the whims of some other larger forces, sort of in the evolutionary sense of the word? But isn't there also a question implied in there about the potential sort of maximum size of the economy? Like, there are no elephants the size of a mountain, like elephants right. only get as big as elephants get. And so aren't you also implying that there's a question here about how big the economy can get? I can say I wish you knew more about the limiting sizes of animals, but I think the animals in like marlin and whales that don't have to support themselves from the full force of gravity on land have different restrictions or perhaps no restriction on the size that they can acquire. And they'll eventually stop growing and die, but it'll be from a different process than, say, yeah, an elephant, which can't grow in its certain structure before it just physically can't hold itself up. It's hard to draw complete generalizations, but looking at the examples such as you brought up, like an elephant, the difference between an elephant and a whale, you start to get into the physical constraints. A whale doesn't have to hold itself up on uh, the force of gravity and just is buoyant in the ocean, so its mass can accumulate, and it doesn't have to accumulate strong bones to hold itself up and the muscles for that. You can focus on other ways of accumulating mass. But even blue whales have a maximum potential size, right? Like we don't know of any blue whales that are the size of the Chrysler building or whatever, right? So, I mean, everything has a size limit. Isn't that really what you're driving at here with the economy? I'm not driving at that, and I'm not sure that it's agreed upon whether whales have an ultimate maximum size. But okay, I mean, from a design standpoint, maybe they just can't acquire enough food. So yeah, it's a little bit out of my realm. I have read things that say it's not completely obvious. Well, I mean, I guess I'm just trying to understand what is the point with this book referring to the economy as a superorganism and the relationship between GDP and energy consumption. Doesn't it drive at this question of like, how big can the economy really get? Partly, but it's a little bit more of just saying, if you're going to try to understand the economy, then you should focus on what the role of energy is in that. And if you don't have energy, then you're going to shrink or die, right? Just like if you're not going to eat food. So that's, in some sense, independent of what is the ultimate size of the economy. I'm someone who would say the ultimate size of the economy cannot go to infinity. So if I want to understand whether the size of the environment is actually influencing things like the size of the economy, then I can't answer that question unless I put a finite size of the environment into my economic model or into my mathematical framework. Otherwise, there's no number to tell me whether that's 
affecting the answers or not. So I've put that into some of my economic modeling, and you get, let's say, eventually a restriction in the growth rate or the increasing consumption rate of resources or energy for some reasons we described already, the sort of energy return on investment feedback concept. The further you dig into the ground for oil and gas, for example, then it's going to take more physical effort, more energy specifically, and useful work to get that, which is a feedback to raise the cost of energy. And as it sucks more energy into that process, there's less energy available to essentially, say, accumulate another machine. So the Harmony model paper that I published that came out earlier this year, 2020, can maybe explain it this way. Let's just say that you extract some resources, generically speaking, from the environment. And there's three main set of activities. One is whatever a capital exists, it's used as a fuel to operate that capital. That's just like needing energy or electricity or diesel fuel to run a machine. The second thing it does is, is it provides the physical resource to actually become more machines. So to become a building or to become a car, we extract things from the environment to do that. And the third thing is it provides the sustenance to effectively accumulate and support people which is to say grow a population from a biophysical basis. Let's just say if you're having an energy system that's requiring more and more fuel to extract the next unit of energy, then it's going to start shrinking eventually the amount of natural resources that can go to either making more capital or essentially making more people. And that's the feedback that would constrain growth of the economy ultimately. Okay, so rather than the, you know, what's the maximum size question I was making earlier, it's more like how big can it get given the amount of energy that you've got? And this takes us back to this earlier point about what the relationship is between macroeconomics and energy, which you're saying is not really capturing the whole picture. So if the mainstream conception of economics is wrong, what is the right way to understand the relationship between energy and economic activity? Well, I'll try to highlight a couple other things we've touched on, but tackle your question in this way. I might think about not the word right or correct, but the word accurate and consistent. So let's say we want an accurate and consistent way to understand the economy. And one that is consistent means it's consistent with observations of the world around us. I might say a philosophy of naturalism, that we observe the world around us and we try to describe it in an accurate manner as much as we can within our knowledge base. So there can be a difference between the correct or right way to make decisions, as we might think about in the economy, versus the most accurate model of how the world works. So the book is essentially saying, well, one possible accurate and consistent framework to think about the economy is to think of it as this superorganism, has its constraints on how it obtains resources, has constraints on how it distributes resources among its parts, it's self-preserving, it's goal-seeking, And if we have multiple economies in the world, as we do with countries, then they might be competing against each other as well. So we can ask ourselves a question, if the economy is governed by similar processes as biological organisms and evolution and natural selection, whether we like that concept or not, we can think about the analog. So evolution is not necessarily forward-looking. There's no planning. There are random mutations that occur without any knowledge our plan on why they should mutate, they just kind of randomly mutate. We only determine later, or at least us from the outside looking at organisms, try to conclude why that particular mutation made the organism more fit to survive. So as much as we make economic rules to think about long-term planning and 
get people to respond to immediate price signals. So we can try to make rules for long-term planning like climate change, and that's one thing. We can also just make markets and have immediate price signals, and then people can respond to these price signals without really thinking about what they're doing. And this is a little bit more akin to organisms responding to signals in the environment. They don't have concepts like the laws of thermodynamics and gravity. They're just kind of responding to these real effects without understanding them. So in this sense of organisms mutating and just responding to signals without understanding them, in some sense, markets can be a similar kind of structure. They can be organized without any forward-looking plan based on only marginal costs, no knowledge of physics, no concept of thinking about the role of energy in operating machines. So without any explicit thinking about that, we create them and they send price signals and people respond to them. So that's another option. That's essentially largely what we're doing, I think. People trying to make markets. I mean, the electricity market is probably the most clear-cut example. Wholesale market, right? It's only based on marginal costs. The marginal costs, in this case, do include fuel. But it's not thinking about any larger framework of physics and its role within the economy. It's just one more market amongst others. So good or bad, I think, or correct, I think you use the word right. What's the right way to make decisions? I'm kind of staying away from answering that question because in the book, I kind of realized, well, there's this fundamental disagreement from an economic worldview perspective. You know, should I have the most accurate model of something or should I just have something that gives the correct signals for entities like companies to survive, which is more of a biological evolutionary concept. So one way to understand a connection between the energy and economic activity is to kind of think about this biological analog and the concepts of evolution. In biology, we have genes. These are sort of information encoded into an organism that affect how it responds to the environment and grows. And similar to genes in the economy, we have ideas or memes. And the word meme was derived to rhyme with gene, derived by Richard Dawkins to rhyme with that idea as the core information that is being passed on in our culture, in our economy, is part of that culture. So we have genes and memes. On another level, these genes inform how organisms form, and organisms are the entities that consume energy in the environment and produce useful work and grow. And similar to organisms, we can have companies. Different organisms have many of the same genes, and companies can have many of the same memes and technologies. So any company can own different types of energy technologies. Most companies have people using computers. So these are ideas that can be used universally within different companies. And just like there are organisms, there are ecosystems composed of many organisms. And just as there are companies, there are economies composed of many companies and many people acting in them. So we have these parallels from essentially genes to memes, from organisms to companies, and from economies to ecosystems. And economists have thought about this before, so this is not particularly new, but it is important to think about these parallels. And if we think about these parallels from the concept of evolution, there was an idea from Alfred Lotka and then Howard Odom, two ecologists, promoted that they called the maximum power principle. And their idea was describing organisms was those organisms that seem to consume the most power or the extract resources at the fastest rate from their environment enable them to do more work, essentially accumulate more mass within their ecosystem, and they may help other organisms within their ecosystem as well. And this is because they're more fit. If you consume more of the mass and a higher proportion of the resources from your ecosystem, you'll tend to be more fit and then survive and then produce offspring. So the parallel 
to the economy is, we can ask, well, are companies, memes within companies, companies within economies, are the ones that would tend to be more fit and survive those that also consume energy at a higher rate? And would those tend to make that economy or that company stronger and then survive and pass on its ideas and its memes over time? And if an economy were actually to specifically go against this idea, which is to say, take actions where you do not actually produce more useful work, would that economy be less fit and be less prone to survive? And this brings up questions about if we should target reducing total energy consumption or resource consumption in general. And if an economy does that, if it puts itself at risk, as an organism might put itself at risk of essentially not surviving long enough to pass on that meme of not consuming power at the maximum rate possible. Well, what would be the point of effectively telling an economy or a company to stop consuming energy at a higher rate and growing? Well, if you are somebody who thinks that you're going to destroy the environment by continuously growing, which means by definition you're continuing to extract resources from the environment at a higher rate, then you might think that that's not a good outcome for your species or humans. So, I mean, this is in some sense the question of climate change. Are we going to make the earth not habitable for ourselves? And should we restrict how our economy operates to make it habitable? Okay. Well, this effectively brings us to a question here about degrowth then, I think. We talked about degrowth earlier this year in episode 125 because it seemed to be at the heart of what the film The Planet of the Humans by Jeff Gibbs and Michael Moore was about. So if your contention is that we must scale back our consumption of energy, then it seems like you are arguing for some sort of degrowth strategy, which is something that the techno-realism camp would approve, I think. But if so, then I also have to raise the objections I raised in that episode, which are essentially that I find most degrowth prescriptions to be just utterly impractical because we do not live in a technocracy. There's no way using our existing tools of governance and so on and the fact that most of our decisions economically are ultimately made politically in many ways to actually implement a degrowth strategy. So what would you say to that? Well, I'm not saying that we should or should not have a degrowth strategy. But at the moment, I'm just saying, well, if you did have a degrowth strategy, here's the sort of evolutionary perspective on why that would be difficult to pan out in the long run. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. 
We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. In another step toward our all-electric future, on November 10th, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors voted unanimously to prohibit appliances that use natural gas in new construction starting July 1st, 2021. Planned buildings with retail space are exempt from the all-electric transition until January 1st, 2022. New construction restaurants may apply for a waiver to the rule, and existing restaurants will not be affected by it. District 8 Supervisor Raphael Mandelman called the ordinance, quote, an incremental but important move to help save our planet. Natural gas accounts for roughly 40% of San Francisco's overall emissions of greenhouse gases and 80% of building emissions. In addition to the greenhouse gas reductions, the move to requiring all-electric buildings promises to improve safety and indoor air quality. For example, a report from the Rocky Mountain Institute found that children living in homes with gas stoves have a 42% increased risk of developing asthma symptoms. The new rule makes San Francisco the largest U.S. city to ban natural gas in new buildings, but listeners may recall that we discussed natural gas bans that were under consideration in numerous other cities in the news segment of episode 106 after Berkeley, California became the first city in the U.S. to implement such a ban in July 2019. Since then, 38 other cities in California have passed similar ordinances. Item 2. According to Morgan Stanley analysts, the U.S. power sector is approaching peak gas, with demand for gas starting to decline in the next year or two. Meanwhile, they expect renewables to keep growing and to snatch the lead away from gas as the leading source of grid power by 2028. Among the many reasons the analysts cite are the surging deployment of utility-scale battery storage and the fact that wind and solar are now the cheapest form of electricity in most of the world, including... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XC Network. <laughs>